0: Hello everybody and welcome back to New Books in Spiritual and Mindfulness, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Meg, today's host of the channel, and today we are talking to Dr. Emily Jane O'Dell about the book, The Gift of Rumi, Experiencing the Wisdom of the Sufi Master. Dr. O'Dell, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for inviting me. Yes, we're so glad to have you. Um, okay, Dr. O'Dell, I wonder if you could begin our interview today just by telling us about um, who you are and maybe a little bit about what the topic you're talking about and that got you so interested in.
1: Uh, thank you so much. So I am a um, writer, adventurer, professor, um, and a um, A a curious soul, I guess you could say. Um, So I am in my in my professorial role, um, currently teaching in Myanmar, um, which I'm Mm -hmm. enjoying so much. Um, And I've taught stateside at um, Harvard, Brown, Columbia and abroad. I've been so fortunate to teach in Um, China, Oman, Lebanon. So I like um, to kind of be a professor in a global context. And um, I've spent the past about two decades um, in relation to this book, traveling the Silk Road from kind of Indonesia to Mali and many places in between. Um, And so I I took about two decades to visit all these places and in particular to visit Sufi, uh, masters, or we could say like mystic masters, um, uh, in, in um, in the religion of Islam and to meet with them in, in cities, in the middle of the desert, in Sudan, um, in, in, you know, in Lebanon, in Syria, in Afghanistan, um, all these countries and always, uh, so welcomed with such incredible and humbling hospitality. And so I went to them, um, to ask kind of the big questions of life um, in, in how to be a person and um, how to survive in this world and uh, ethical questions about how to relate to others um, and how to contemplate my own death uh, and the death of, of loved ones and how to live with that awareness of death um, and with that awareness, how, how to live. Um, and I, they shared so generously with me Um, And I that was really my I say my true education. I went, um, you know, I have four degrees from Brown, one from Columbia and then did my postdoc at Harvard. But I feel that my real education was in uh, as how to be a human being is the most important education. And um, I'm so grateful to all these teachers um, who shared with me. Um, their own personal experience, and and as if you read the book, also um kind of gave some counseling, um in in soul counseling, psychological counseling, and um emotional um, guidance in how to uh, be a person and um, how to keep trying to perfect oneself as a human being in this world full of challenges.
0: Oh my goodness! Yes, absolutely, and I feel like just that introduction you just gave kind of gives a sneak peek of the richness that is in the book. So I'm really grateful that you shared not only your educational experience, but also this two decade long journey that you've been on encountering other folks and learning how to be as a human. I just think that that is a great introduction for this book. Um, My first question for you uh, and I feel like you kind of touch on this generally, but I'm wondering are there any specific moments that led to your decision to write this book, The Gift of Rumi?
1: Um, great question. Um so I I had been drawn to Rumi's poetry um very young. My mother at one point was a comparative religions major, so her bookshelves were she had the Quran, she had the Up- Upanishads, Bhagavad Gita, Bible, all these different religious traditions. So I could, you know, read, I read the Quran already in high school, um, and then was drawn to Rumi's poetry in college, especially. Um, And I had been studying, I studied Arabic for five years at Brown. And I just got interested in Rumi's poetry and wanted and, and wanted to read it in the original. So I started taking Persian. And then I started to see kind of in learning Persian at Brown and then at Harvard and then in Tajikistan with the American Institute of Iranian Studies, which was an incredible uh, experience, um, that the translations weren't like necessarily what I was reading in the Persian. So I just thought, oh, okay, that's interesting. And how did that happen? And kind of looking into that and wanting to kind um, kind of give readers a kind of a word-for-word translation of Rumi's poetry. Um, And so that, I just felt there was kind of a need for that. And people have articulated over, I'd say, about the past five years on on social media, a kind of a a desire for that. Um, And I thought, well, that's something I wish I could read. So they say, you know, if, if you don't find the book you want to read, write it. So it's one of those situations. And then I had this incredible unique opportunity where I was invited to do a 40-day retreat uh, in Istanbul, a spiritual retreat to learn how to whirl like a dervish. And this was with a whirling dervish master and his um, students, his like Sufi disciples, and to just not leave that 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 dwelling for forty days, and to just really dive into Dervish life. So whirling, but whirling is just one aspect of um, Dervish community. And this is the Sufi order, the Mevlevi Sufi order, that is dedicated to uh, Rumi and is coming from and his um, life, his tradition, and. His, it's his legacy really. So I got to learn how to, as in the book you people will read, try to learn how to play <laughs> the nay, the reed flute unsuccessfully. Mm-hmm. Um, spoiler alert. And um how to whirl. <laughs> and and in doing this, um I just thought, you know, you know, wow, like this is incredible. And um, I, I would like to share kind of the essence of Rumi's um, Sufi poetry and his historical context and cultural context and how his legacy is embodied and transmitted today so people can see this is not just you know, 13th century poetry. This is lived, embodied, um, and treasured by um, Muslim practitioners around the world, just absolutely treasured. Um, and in my introduction, I say how in the musical traditions of Central Asia and in India and Pakistan, uh, the lyrics come from Rumi's sufi poetry of many of these traditional musical forms. So, um, the, the sheikh that I did this retreat with said to me, "You know, you will kind of, you will write a book, and it will help explain Rumi." To, to Westerners or Western readers. And I thought, I will, you know, like, really? <laughs> yeah. uh, okay, sure. And, and that was like the least of my concerns then. And I just, I didn't even think that would be a possibility, but he kind of planted the seed. And then I, I felt the responsibility. And so I kind of felt this was an act of service to kind of give back what I had been given so much by him and his community and all the other shakes on the road that um, this would be some small way of kind of giving back. And sharing it and
0: passing it forward. Oh my gosh, yes! And also, what what an incredible opportunity to have those forty days. And I'm just saying, um, for those of our listeners who might not have a real deep cultural understanding of the whirling dervish and the dervish community, can you just give us a high level explanation of what that's like? Maybe what makes that unique.
1: Sure. Great question. So kind of the foundation of that dervish education is um, mindfulness in the sense of kind of etiquette and manners where every, you know, you're kind of training so that you're, you're aware every moment and not just aware, but trying to give love, to be love, to breathe love. So you have to be aware, number one, but also... It's awareness in love, with love, and for love. And so that takes training, and that takes um, guidance. So um, the sheikh is in the role to to kind of always, well, just their presence alone makes you kind of awake and aware. Um, and so I say in the book, you know, even the way people place their shoes at the door, should be done with awareness and love and care, that every action should be done with love and care, every breath um, and every glance with love. Uh, So this takes practice. And it was great because it was like a dervish laboratory where we could all practice, number one, trying to just strip away the ego, strip away our worldly preoccupations and our competition, maybe like our desire for you know, competition or a world or consumption, all these things just stripped down to kind of like a more natural state of being in community and in love and, um, and practice together, um, trying to be better human beings with one another, um, and so edit, that's kind of the basis, is that etiquette um, and, and manners. And so that even includes like little bowing before you enter the room, permission to enter the room. But it, it's great because it really makes you kind of aware of, of yourself and, and of the other, um, which is important. Mm-hmm. So, oh, the, yeah. yeah, so the Whirling Dervish Education, yes, it's about very particular how to whirl. And the whole ceremony is very coded. Every gesture is coded with meaning. You have to learn that meaning. You have to practice that meaning. And I go into that a bit in the book. Um, but um, the, you know, the foundation is really etiquette manners and um, relating to each other um, with love and compassion and service. So that laboratory gave us an opportunity to practice serving one another with the idea that the best way to kind of strip down the ego is through serving others. And that was really an incredible opportunity in education to practice constantly. Everybody is like trying to serve one another, you know. Uh, everybody has a role. Somebody's the tea person. Somebody's the like clean up the plates person. Everybody has their role. And um, and those roles can shift. Um, but what a great opportunity to be a um, of service, I think in one of the lines I translated from Rumi, he says, "You know, to you, you know, the goal is to kind of find the sultanate hidden in servitude." Um, and so I just, I just love that. Um, it's, it's so strong in his, in his poetry as well. The idea of being of service to people, uh, and then kind of the, the humbling of self in the presence of kind of the divine.
0: Mm. Oh, that's powerful. Thank you so much for, for that explanation. Um. And it seems like you really take time. I just want to say this for the listeners that you really do take time to unpack so much in the book, not just culturally, but I think historically as well. And I'm curious can you talk a little bit about um, the significance of bringing in, particularly Rumi's history, like what his context was and what his journey and his life would have been like?
1: Oh, thank you. That's a, that's, um, yeah, thank you for that. I think um, I felt that was important because you know we have these oh, Rumi's been the best-selling poet in America in English for this many years, and everybody talks about that, and we all have an idea of this this quote Rumi, who's um, we talk about, but then do readers really know who we're talking about? Right. So mm-hmm. I wanted to kind of fill in those blanks um, and give a hopefully a kind of more holistic, three dimensional picture of, of who this incredible uh, Muslim preacher, jurist, poet, mystic was, um, and explain the complexities of his life and the time that he lived in, which was not a time of peace, which was a time of incredible um, kind of violence. You had the Mongol invasions. You also had a lot of uh, local power struggles in Central Asia. He and his family um, traveled from the region of Tajikistan and Afghanistan across Central Asia all the way to Anatolia and modern-day Turkey. Uh, he's buried in Konya where every December 17th, I highly recommend to people listening, people gather yes. in yes. his um, memory to celebrate his um, his an- the anniversary of his death. It's an incredible place um, to be on December 17th. And so It's incredible because it's a time of everything being so uprooted, uncertain, major fear. Nobody kind of, you know, it was like the world was kind of ending with these Mongol invasions in people's minds. And within that horrifying landscape of violence and uncertainty, he creates and writes these ecstatic verses that that so many of us love and treasure. So I think that's important, because I think when we kind of just inherit the kind of hippy, dippy, roomy thing is like, Oh, yay, peace and love, you know, but it's a, it's, it's an incredible uh, example of the human spirit that in the face of all of that still turning to love, turning to ecstasy, turning towards to to communion and to kind of a universal humanity, you know, even though you're seeing the worst of humanity, wait, you know, we are are better than this and we can be. And let's also kind of rise above this level of, of um, treachery, you know, and embrace something so much more nourishing and beautiful. So I think that's really kind of why I wanted to include the history and also his own kind of, you know, as somebody uh, kind of in a sense of refugee, a migrant moving, that's also resonates with kind of our world today. And people have read it have kind of said that um, they appreciate that contextualization because of kind of the uh, what's happening today in the world with migrations. Um, so, yeah, that's kind of why I gave that history. And then also I felt it was important to to point out his um role as a muslim preacher and i included a lot of poems that are preachy for that reason you know that it's yes it's love 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 right but it's also um holding the reader to an ethical and moral standard and and pushing the reader to be a better person and i to to include those verses i have to explain where that's coming from right um So, and then also as a jurist, it's fun. He has a lot of verses about um, Islamic law and he had a certain kind of contentious relationship with jurists who were kind of all very much with, you know, kind of obsessed with the letter of the law. And he says, you know, our judge cares only about is is the judge of love and plays with that. Um, So I liked, um, I wanted to include that history too.
0: Yeah, I love that because it gave such a unique, context to read Rumi through rather than you know what you were saying like just you know here's this love and let's talk about love but this is like a resilient fierce overcoming type of love that you know even in the book you'll say um that Rumi wasn't interested in monasticism and in this day and age that he was living in it would have been really easy to be a spiritual leader and to just lock yourself away because humanity is out of control but you say um that one should not cut themselves off from the world because without the vices and tests and troubles of the world we would not develop spiritually and i just feel like that resonated so deep and true and it you know we wouldn't have got that same understanding of rumi if we didn't have that spiritual context and i would love if you could even just share a little bit more about this, like this coming back into the world, even though it's gnarly and it's chaos. Like when we are pursuing spiritual integrity to remember that we can't just shut ourselves out. We have to engage. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah. Beautiful. Thank you. Yeah. I'm so, I love that you picked up on that because it's something that was not just something that like we find in his poetry, but was a big kind of philosophical question of 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 the day and several centuries before him as well, because in certain places um, like in Iraq, um, mystics in the Islamic tradition were encountering Christians and also um, monastics and looking at that. And there's a I'm not going to get too kind of academic about this, but. Um, you know, I, there's that one verse I put in the thing where he says, you know, don't go castrate yourself and become a monk, you know? Um, and, and so this was kind of a, this, this was a dialogue of, of, do you remove yourself from the world? If we can, if we're, if you're going to look at the world and say, oh, wow, this is, um, this is problematic, right? Um, do you engage with it? How do you engage with it? Or do you remove yourself? So kind of, it it in it, his point and, and kind of the idea is to be in the world but not of the world, right? So one of the issues was there were dervishes um before Rumi's time who were going off into the desert and kind of shunning marriage and that is not kind of compatible with the Islamic uh tradition and, and then you do need you need children and unique communities and so people started to kind of critique that impulse to 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 kind of to leave you know and to kind of opt out so uh, the kind of compromises kind of be in the world but not of the world so you're in it but not attached to it um but like you said also it's like kind of grist for the mill of well all of these challenges that we encounter in the world um are kind of an opportunity to practice those things of perhaps not being attached. Right. Um, And um, yeah. And, and many other kind of spiritual facets that in the ways that you can kind of approach the world um, with an intention to kind of, to use it to better oneself and to better and to help other people. Right. So when we look at the world and say, Oh, I want to test out. Well, that's not, that's about the self, right. That's all about me, 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 me. Um, instead of looking at the world and and serving others, um, and and seeing the need to serve others, you know, many Sufi um, lodges had kind of what we would call kind of like a uh, I don't want to call it hospice, but you know, like a place for like a like a hostel kind of people, travelers to come through, and also for poor people to come, sick people to come, um, constant serving. So that's also kind of Dervish culture um, at that time is, um, and and for many centuries later is serving serving those in need. And that becomes a reason to be in the world, um, is to serve others. And um yeah, I I yeah, I, I think it's a it's a question that remains for pretty much everybody I know in my life, right? Is, <laughs> yes. Um everybody wants to now be in their little caves and say, oh this is too much, but this is not in a way it's nothing new, right? This is a this is what it means to be a human being. Um it's how do we engage in this world, relate to one another Um, And do we opt out because it's just too much or whatever? Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. And I love that we're, you know, Rumi was asking these questions and having these conversations so long ago, and we're still grappling with what that looks like and what that means for us. And I just think that's so powerful.
1: Mm -hmm. I think that's true. But I think what's so amazing is poems and what I try to include were verses where, He's he's aiming for not just the stars, but beyond the stars. And it's kind of like, why are you making your preoccupation this world? Right. Instead of the divine realm. And so that's where the kind of whirling practice comes in is like you, it's kind of a metaphor of you keep turning, keep turning, keep turning towards the divine, keep turning towards beauty, keep turning towards ecstasy and bewilderment and turn towards not knowing and so that's the refuge the refuge um and and kind of the the work in a way is to just keep turning and keeping one's consciousness and sights um spiritual kind of sights on that on love right and so that's for him everything else falls away. If your sights are on love, then whatever, all these are preoccupations with the world, which are still worldly preoccupations, fall away. Um, And so, you know, I think there's a great verse I put in there that he wrote where he says, you know, if if my eyes have ever, like, looked upon anything else but love, you know, on the day of kind of judgment, like, keep kind of paradise for me. I'm paraphrasing. But, you know, like, don't take one moment in life... To look at anything except love and see, you know, so I just, I think that in many ways is um, a phenomenal fix and um, guidance is, uh, and how to get through the muck is why are you looking at the muck, right? We have all these other um, beautiful ways of being and relating and uh, just being in love. And that's, um, that's the refuge.
0: Yeah. And that's timeless, you know? Mm -hmm. True. I love that. Um, okay. You brought this up. So I'm going to go here. Uh, the whirling dervish, like Rumi and his experience with that. But I'm also curious, I don't want you to give too much away cause I want people to go and buy your book and support you and read about it. But I also am curious, can you give us just a little sneak peek into your own whirling dervish experience?
1: Hmm. Okay. Sure. Um, so, um, I have a, uh, a dance background, so you know, I kind of started off with like, oh, how hard can it really be? Well, it turns out it is <laughs> right. very hard. Um, <laughs> yes. And the teacher wanted to train me very slowly, which is the traditional way, and that's what I loved because, for better and worse, I'm very much a purist in um in traditions that I study. Is I, I kind of want it to be. You know, and so I'm very fortunate that I found a sheikh who teaches in the traditional way. You know, this is going back centuries. Um, this is very unusual. I mean, that's very hard to find. So I was very fortunate just because that's kind of my orientation is kind of purist. So I'm like, OK. And, you know, he, he made a, a wooden board and he stuck a stick. Um, like there's a little kind of it's not a nail because that sounds like it'll hurt a lot, but a little knob, let's say, in the middle. And you stick your first two toes, kind of put that knob between those. And it's just very slow for the first, when he starts training people. And I'm a little impatient. So I am a purist, but I'm impatient. So I'm like, okay, I got it. I got this step, you know. But so much of what he was teaching me was in the process of learning, which was about patience, you know. So there's all these kind of lessons happening on multiple levels. Um, And we each would take our turn on the board, you know, and eventually then I advanced and then I got to do it without the board. And then I, to my surprise, got given the kind of the gown to, you know, the beautiful white gown. And I meant to say with your question before about the world is that all that, um, the, the cloak, these mean things. So the white represents kind of the funeral shroud and then the black cloak over that is the world and kind of, all those, everything that comes with the world. And so when the ceremony begins, you take off that black cloak because you are taking off the world to kind of merge and feel and uh, love. And, but at the end, this goes back to your question, you know, we put back on the black cloak. So you, you don't get to stay in that ecstatic state. You don't get to stay in those kind of celestial, transcendent realms. You must come back down to earth but the idea is now you have to go be a servant and bring that love to other people. So the, the whirling dervish ceremony itself that you're asking about really mirrors that kind of what we just talked about in that last question of, you you yes, you can ascend, transcend and taste that ecstasy of love, but then come back down and then give that to other people. So it was great to kind of learn that in an embodied practice in community and have the support of my dervish brothers who were so supportive and wonderful. And then I had to do my final exam, which was a shock to, like surprise to me of turning <laughs> one thousand and one times when they yes. counted. And, yeah. um, that was, um, really fun. Cause I, I just, I mean, I mean, fun when it was over. Um, right, right. I, but, um, it was a great experience and I just loved feeling their love and support as I tried to, wobble a thousand and one times um and not lose my lunch um there's tricks it takes practice yeah
0: yes oh wow what an awesome opportunity and one thing that i love about the book is that it is such an embodied experience like the faith journey in this way is very embodied it's not apart from the body just like it's not apart from the world it's very embodied i think that's so powerful Okay, I think I have time to sneak in a couple of last questions. So I just want to think through, um, there was one chapter. Oh, okay, the chapter on self-blame. I was so curious. This was so intriguing to me, especially as a Westerner, an American Westerner particularly, where we value so much of the ego and the appearance. And I'm just curious, can you talk to us about the path of self-blame?
1: I will, and you know, it's interesting. Usually, when I speak about um, Sufism and Sufi history, I don't talk about it just because, like you said, it's kind of so kind of foreign to our our uh, construction of subjectivity and, and ways of being in the world. But as I was translating Rumi and reading so much in Persian, and how so much of that kind of path, which I'll explain in a minute, comes up, I just thought, okay. I need to include this, and also it was kind of a—you can see it in the behavior of his teacher Shams of Tabriz. So I thought, well, this is a big part of him, and I shouldn't leave it out just because maybe it's a little strange to um to a Western reader. So uh, the I so one way we can work on our ego, um, and in the sense of, um, or let's say our ego attachments and our idea of self and separateness from other people, right, uh, is service. But another way is to, and and this is not for everybody um it would be kind of if somebody is at a certain let's say kind of level of understanding um because it could be misunderstood and abused uh would be to bring blame on the self uh to kind of intentionally humble oneself so let's just give an example of you know if you know one should not drink in islam so what if one carries through the street um and I'm talking about this as a specific example in Remy's day, um, you know, a, a container of alcohol, I'm not drinking from it, but oh, people then might talk. Right. And, and then you kind of intentionally maybe bring some ruin upon your reputation to kind of break your attachment to reputation. Um, and this is not really practiced today. I do know s- maybe some who have practiced it in little ways um, to just kind of bring some little blame on themselves to humble themselves, not really practice today, but it was a bigger part of Sufi practice um, then. And um, I think, I think it's liberating. I hope maybe you can tell me as a reader, but kind of liberating to even read about as a possibility, right? Because we're so kind of fixed to our notions of ego and self and reputation. I don't know.
0: What was it like for you to read that or yeah, I think exactly what you said, because it is such a foreign thing. Just to even go there in my mind was really interesting because, you know, every part of our culture here, at least, you know, I'm in outside of Philadelphia and work culture, like parent culture, all of it is about like what is reflected back at you as who you are and what you can do, what you what you produce, how much you work, you know, and just to have the permission to let go of that. That's more what I took as a reader was to look at it through the lens of like, this is permission that there is a better way and you don't need to hold so tightly to that, to that ego.
1: Right. And, is you know, is it better? Or is it going to also just make you <laughs> happier? Right. Uh, and more at peace? So like, you know, in the kind of the great resignation, everybody quitting their jobs, I have friends who have quit and they quit. And they're, really, they're like, I'm going to quit. And then they quit. And then they're like, so they'll be out with friends or or maybe they'll meet a friend of a friend. And they're like, oh, so what do you do? And then even though they think they no longer care about reputation, they're like, oh my gosh, like, oh, well, I was working at it. The, and they can see they're still so attached, even though they took this great big leap to say like, you know what, I'm going to quit and just like be for a little bit. And, and but then they run up against the ego and like, how is it? How am I framed to people? And like, what are they going to think of me? And. So it's very difficult for even when I think somebody takes that leap, it's still, it's, it's very hard, you know? Yes. But definitely. then they're very happy and then they're much happier and they're much more at peace, uh, but it takes, there's a transition. <laughs> which yeah. Can be it's, a, a it, it's a shock at first.
0: Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Okay. If you could leave us with one final thought now that your book is out in the wild and we are mm-hmm. loving it and the readers are going to love oh, it. What would it be? Oh, You're sweet. Thank you. Oh, what's my final thought? What, what is my mm-hmm. thought it's supposed to be about? Um, if you if you know someone's gonna pick up your book today, like what would you what would your final thought as the author be?
1: Oh, um, love, just love all the way. L O V E. That's that's all there is. That's um, that's that's the aim. That's um, the the purpose, um, and that's the kind of. The, the everything um, i have nothing to say other than just love i would hope uh they would hopefully feel and take away that um and and how different how radically different different our life can be if and when we make love the centerpiece of not just of our life but of our very being and of um of every breath um and our understanding of the nature of reality as love and um and, and, and I would venture perhaps, or if not perhaps, but certainly kind of the purpose of our our whole being here in our existence.
0: Mm. Oh, that's good. Thank you, Dr. Odell. Okay, I could probably talk to you for a few more hours, but I feel like we've taken a lot of your time. Um, before I let you go, will you tell us what um, what are some projects you're working on now? Like what's next?
1: Thank you so much um, for... So, I am working on a memoir. Um, I just, I, I'm, I was living um, in China during the pandemic and also got to spend winter time and summer in Tibet. Um, and so, I am working on, and I'm, I'm very happy with it so far, um, a memoir about um, my time in China and Tibet during the pandemic, but it's not really even about the pandemic, but it gives a real kind of unique behind the scenes um, look into uh, kind of realities on the ground in China and, uh, and in Tibet and, and an extraordinary cast of characters who they're just incredible people. So people who have read it or have heard me tell the whole story, they're like, Oh my God, this is a movie. Just jump to the screenplay. Just jump to the screenplay. So I will also, yeah. I will also hope to write a screenplay. Um, and then I'm in Los Angeles and I'm working on them. Um, a screenplay about a chapter of American history that um, I cannot wait to share. Uh, um, It's been amazing to dive into American history and see kind of the roots of things going on today in this particular chapter of American history. So I'm kind of focused on that. And then I have a play reading coming up um, about a famous modern... Uh, activist in China um, that I I can't wait to share. So I have a play, a screenplay and a book. Um, uh, So I'm busy writing and, and so happy to be just having the time to kind of write all these tales.
0: Wow. Oh my gosh, those sound like such great projects. Well, oh, we just want to thank you so much for being on the show tonight. And we really enjoyed interviewing you. And I can't wait to continue to support your work. So thank you so oh, much for tonight. You. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much for having me. This has been so wonderful. And I, I'm, I'm so touched that you read the book and um, and you're sharing it with your listeners. Thanks so much.
0: Yes, of course.